chapter 37, as we uh, complete our study of this first chapter, and our study of Joseph and his brothers. So Genesis chapter 37, we're going to begin reading in verse 12, picking up where we left off this morning, and uh, there we go. And uh, continuing uh, to the end of the chapter. So Genesis 37, beginning in verse 12. And here's what we read. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Well, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his sons many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Well, Tonight we see the first in a series 
of unfortunate events. I'm borrowing that phrase from the title of a series of children's books, and I'm using that word unfortunate in a tongue-in-cheek fashion. When we say that something that's happened was unfortunate, we're usually saying that it was a case of bad luck. And one might look at the calamities that come upon Joseph and think, boy, this was just all a matter of rotten chance, right? We, we don't get to choose who our siblings are. And yet Joseph had the unfortunate experience of being raised with these cruel brothers and, and they treat him in this cruel way. What rotten luck for Joseph. And of course, this is only the beginning of rotten luck for, jo- for Joseph. But of course, as Bible-believing Christians, we don't believe in luck, whether good or bad. We know that there is nothing left to chance, that all things are ordered by God for His glory and the good of His people. Everything is under God's sovereign control, even the outcome of the Panthers game that is happening right now, right? Even the suffering, even the suffering of God's people is a part of God's plan to exalt them and to do them good. And that's the main point of this passage. Uh, These verses are to be read in light of what we know about the rest of this story. Because we know how this story ends. This story ends with Joseph wealthy, with Joseph powerful in Egypt, with Joseph using his position to save the lives of these brothers. The covenant family is going to be preserved. And in the fullness of time, that great descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, will be born. So that what Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God means for good. And that's the banner over this entire story. Now, we're going to see in this passage the great wickedness of Joseph's brothers, the suffering of Joseph, but ultimately the providence of God that was at work in all of this. Now, my outline for tonight is just a walk through the verses we've read. So we're just going to take it paragraph by paragraph. There's four paragraphs, and that's how we're going to walk through uh, uh, the message tonight. Along the way, we're going to constantly see these three themes. The wickedness of Joseph's brothers, the suffering of Joseph, but ultimately the providence of God. So let's look at verses 12 through 17. This is where Joseph was given his assignment. Beginning in verse 12, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. So just stop there. We have three verses here. And the same important word is used in each of these three verses. And that word is Shechem. The brothers are pasturing the flock in Shechem. Do you remember why that's important and why that ought to ring bells in our minds? Shechem was important for several reasons, not the least of which is that when Abraham responded to God's call to come into the promised land, Shechem was stop number one. It was the first place that Abraham came to and apparently stayed for a while in the promised land. But more importantly for us, Jacob and his family had lived near Shechem just a few years earlier. 
In fact, the only piece of land that Jacob owned in all of Canaan was a field near Shechem, and he had built an altar to the Lord in that field. Interestingly, hundreds of years later, Joseph's bones are going to be brought to Shechem and buried in that field. The most important thing for us to remember, though, at this point, is what has just occurred at Shechem just a few years earlier, back when Jacob and the family were still living there. The prince of that city, um, we use the term prince loosely. It was not a big city. It was not an empire. Basically, this was the son of the governor, so to speak, or the son of the mayor uh, might be a better way to think about it. But the, the prince is what he was called. The prince of that city seized Jacob's daughter, Dinah, and took her. He raped her. And despite that deed, the young man genuinely loved Dinah, and it, it may have been that Dinah actually genuinely loved this man. But this man wanted to make Dinah his wife. Excuse me. <clears throat> Jacob's sons, Dinah's brothers, responded with anger, responded with great uh, feelings of vengeance because of what had happened to their sister. And so in the name of their sister's dignity, Simeon and Levi had attacked the city of Shechem. They deceived the men of that city, convincing them to be circumcised, so that the men of that city were still recovering when the attack occurred. And we're told that Simeon and Levi killed every man in the city, that they took the women and the children hostage, that they plundered the city's possessions and took it all for themselves. And what was Jacob's response to this wicked response of the two brothers? He declared that his sons had made him a stink to the inhabitants of the land, and they moved away from Shechem. And so as shepherds, the sons of Jacob would move with the flocks each year through a rotation of pasture lands wherever there was fresh grass. And this was the precarious time of year in which they and their flocks were now back near Shechem. As you can imagine, there were many in the region of Shechem who hated Jacob and his family because of what they had done. And Jacob had every reason to believe there were people in the region of Shechem who wanted his son's dad, and Jacob had every reason to believe that his sons might get themselves into trouble. They were not known as the more wise or discerning type. And so he was concerned. Jacob was genuinely concerned for his sons pasturing the, the sheep near Shechem. So he calls Joseph and says, Joseph, I want you to go check on your brothers. Bring me word. Tell me if it is well with them. Joseph's response is, here I am, which is an interesting response. It shows that he was willing to do whatever his father asked him to do. And this was no small task. Shechem was 50 miles away from where Jacob and Joseph are now in Hebron. So this was going to be a pretty big journey for Joseph to take. And we see something here of the maturity of Joseph, that his father seems content to send this 17-year-old boy on a 50 miles journey alone in a land in which they are strangers directly towards the region where their family is most hated. And yet Joseph apparently was responsible and a reliable young man. And those three words, here I am, reveal that he was willing to do what his father asked him to do. 
And interestingly, this is another foreshadowing of Christ who came to do the will of his Father who was in heaven. And so Joseph is sent to Shechem. Now that was the assignment. Let's see what happens when Joseph arrives in Shechem. Begin reading in verse 15. Let's see what happens when Joseph arrives. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have all gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So after traveling 50 miles, a multiple day journey, Joseph arrives at Shechem and learns that he must now go another 13 miles due north to Dothan if he is to catch up with his brothers. Uh, Dothan was an area mainly of pasture lands. Um, Archaeologists have actually done a lot of work in what we think was Dothan. So if you can go Google uh, Dothan online and don't go to Dothan, Alabama, go to Dothan in the Middle East. And you can actually see pictures of what they've uncovered uh, through their excavations of this region of Dothan. But here we see the providence of God in getting Joseph to Egypt. Remember the big picture. Nobody yet knows it in this story, but there is a severe famine coming. It's still many years away, but all of their lives are going to be placed in in, in danger. Um, This is going to be a sweeping famine. It's going to cover all of the ancient Near East. Many, many thousands of people will starve to death in this famine. And God's goal is to get Joseph to Egypt with the power to save the chosen family from whom the Messiah will come. So there's not much at stake here except the eternal salvation of you and I, right? Because this is the family that God promised the Messiah is going to come from, and the Messiah can't come from a family that's dead, right? So, so this family has to continue. So that's what's at stake, getting Joseph to Egypt. God has chosen to get Joseph to Egypt in a very humbling way. He wants to bring Joseph to Egypt as a slave, as part of a slave caravan. But that caravan that God has appointed for that purpose, they're not going through Shechem. They're going through Dothan. And so what God has done in his providence is he's brought Joseph's brothers to Dothan. And though they don't know it, the reason they're there is to get Joseph there for when the caravan goes by. It's no accident, no accident. That as Joseph is wandering through these fields of Shechem, scratching his head, wondering where his brothers have gone, a local finds him. This man is not just a local, but he also is a local who knows Joseph's brothers and who was even around them recently and heard them say where they are going. So that's the providence of God at work. That's not coincidence. That's not happenstance. That's the providence of God getting Joseph where he needs to be. Now, Joseph could have turned right back around, only half fulfilling his job. He, he could have reported to his father, I went to Shechem, the brothers, they're, they're on in Dothan, I heard that they're doing fine. But Jacob's instructions were to actually lay eyes on them, see that they're doing well, see that the flocks are doing well, and bring me word. And so in faithful obedience, Jake, Joseph now heads to Dothan after his brothers. Nod your head if you're with me. All right, let's see what happens next. Verse 18. Verse 18. They saw him from afar 
And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Remember from this morning, literally in the Hebrew, here comes that Lord of the dreams, right? Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. So here we see again the wickedness of Joseph's older brothers. They, they see Joseph coming on the horizon. And by the way, we do know that Joseph is wearing his coat because that coat's going to come into play a little bit later. So, so they're probably already upset that dad has sent little brother, his favorite, to come and check up on them. And they're certainly upset that as Joseph comes, he's wearing that flashy coat, that reminder of his place of priority and authority over them. We know from their words, they're still ticked off about these dreams that Joseph has had. They believe that those dreams were a word from God. And so their jealousy has become full-blown hatred, heated to the highest level so that it now boils over into evil actions. And they conspire together how they're going to kill him when he arrives. It's premeditated murder being planned. They come up with a way to get rid of the body. Namely, we're going to throw him into one of the nearby pits. They come up with a cover story. Namely, we're going to take the coat, bloody it up with the blood of an animal, and we're going to say that that he was attacked by a fierce animal. What's more, their attack, it's not just animosity against Joseph. It's animosity against God. They conspire to kill Joseph and say, we will see what will become of his dreams. It's almost as if they're challenging God. God, let's see you exalt Joseph if he's dead. Let's see if you can make your prophecy come true if we kill this brother that we hate. And so the brothers are raging against Joseph. They're raging against God and what God has revealed. They're refusing to submit themselves to God's revealed will. They are completely enslaved by their own wicked feelings. And yet one brother, the eldest, steps forward, Reuben. And at this point, he seeks to be a leader among the brothers. But as we will see, Reuben's leadership is less than admirable. Rather than confronting his fellow brothers about their hatred, rather than urging his brothers to to repent of the things they're feeling and thinking, he simply offers an alternative through which they can have Joseph killed without actually taking his life themselves. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So so Reuben's plan is to come back later and to rescue Joseph. He's unwilling to confront his brothers about their wickedness. Maybe he's afraid they'll they'll turn on him too. And his suggested plan would still mean in their ears certain death for Joseph, right? If if Joseph isn't does if Reuben doesn't come back and rescue Joseph, Joseph is going to die in the pit. So the brothers like this idea because Joseph will die 
And they don't have to do anything physically themselves. They just throw him in the pit. And he will simply die of thirst or starvation. By the way, the same thing is going to happen to the prophet Jeremiah many hundreds of years later. But Jeremiah will be um, recovered, uh, brought out of the pit. Now those last words of verse 22, those last words of verse 22 seem to indicate what was really going on in Reuben's heart. It may be that Reuben hated Joseph just as much as the rest of them. But what his sights were set on was gaining back the favor he had lost with his father. Remember, Reuben had slept with Bilhah, one of his father's concubine wives, and he had fallen out of his father's favor. And so now Reuben seems to be plotting to get back into Jacob's good graces by rescuing his favored son, Joseph. Probably what he has in mind is that he's going to deny that he had anything to do with Joseph being thrown into the pit, and he will present himself to his father as the rescuer of the beloved son. Now we can't know for sure what all was going on in Reuben's heart and mind, but that seems likely. And so his plan was, all right, brothers, you don't have to physically attack him. He is your flesh and blood after all. Just throw him in the pit. He'll die on his own. And in his mind, he's thinking, I'm going to come back and get him later, and this will work for my benefit. Let's see what happens. Verse 23. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. So what is the first thing the brothers do when Joseph arrives? They take off that stinking robe that they hate so much. They strip him of the robe. They remove that symbol of his status so that he stands before them in his undergarments, vulnerable, no longer seeming above them. And then they take Joseph And they throw him into an empty pit. And the word used in the Hebrew is a word of violence. They didn't gently lay him in the pit. They threw him violently into the pit. This pit was likely a cistern. That is a dried up well of which there were many in this area in the ancient world. Uh, These dried up wells were typically bottle shaped. So they were narrow at the top and then they broadened out as they went deeper down. There would have been no way for Joseph to escape. Uh, Moreover, this was a dried up well in a region of fields where the flocks of these brothers were now eating up all the grass. And so it was doubtful that anybody else would be coming into this area for a while. And so Joseph's chance of rescue was very slim. Now, let me ask you a question. What has Joseph done to deserve this? From his brothers. What crime did Joseph commit worthy of his being thrown in this pit and left for dead? Joseph didn't ask for the robe. His father gave him the robe and certainly expected him to wear it. Joseph was probably unwise in sharing his dreams, especially the second time, but that doesn't make him deserving of, of this. He's come to his brothers not to be a smart aleck, he's come to his brothers out of obedience to his father, fulfilling the responsibility that his father gave him. And this is how Joseph is treated. Friends, I would suggest that this is an example 
of suffering for righteousness' sake. That Joseph does not suffer here as an evildoer receiving punishment for wicked actions. Rather, Joseph is suffering in the line of duty, in the line of doing what he was called upon to do. And I would simply say to you that you and I can expect something of the same in our own lives. This is what Peter is talking about when he tells us in 1 Peter 4 not to suffer as an evildoer, but as a Christian. When suffering comes to us, as we seek to be faithful to Christ in our various callings, we must not be surprised. And we must not fall into deep despair. Christ, our head, suffered in the line of duty first. He entered the thorny hedge and came out on the other side victorious. And now we as His body are coming through that hedge and we will emerge the same way. But right now, as we're following Christ, do expect thorns. Do expect there to be some pricking. And let us look to Christ as we suffer. Uh, Peter sums up how we are to face this kind of suffering with these words. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing good. So if you are facing any kind of hardship, as you seek to be faithful to God's revealed will for your life, then entrust yourself to the one who created you. Entrust yourself to the one who keeps his promises to you and continue to be obedient. Continue to do what God would have you to do even in the midst of your hardship and your suffering. And remember, the suffering will come to an end, and glory comes after. Joseph's life is a picture of that truth. Humiliation, suffering, pain, glory. Again, a picture of somebody else's life, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, a picture of the Christian life. This life of trouble, hardship, suffering, and then we breathe our last, and glory, glory. Look with me at, uh, well, let's not look yet. We're coming to our third paragraph. Okay, it begins in English with these six words. Just look at verse 25, those first six words in verse 25, because they're striking. They've just thrown Joseph violently into a pit to leave him for dead. And what do they do next? They sit down and eat. If we're not already convinced of the wickedness in the hearts of these brothers. Just imagine this scene. Imagine what what they have just done, violently stripping Joseph of his robe. This is their own brother, right? Taking him, casting him into the pit, leaving him for dead. But here's the sheep, and they're still grazing, and it's time to eat. So they sit down with Joseph in the pit over there. They sit down and eat. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Maybe, maybe Joseph was still calling out to them, right? Come on, guys, we're, we're brothers. Surely you're not going to leave me here to, to starve. Help me. Please get me out. And meanwhile, they enjoy their sandwiches, engage in conversation. Let's read the whole paragraph, see what happens. Beginning in verse 25. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, They saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, 
What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Listen to that. What profit is it? He's thinking money. Verse 27. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now it isn't mentioned here, but we will learn later that at some point in the midst of this, Reuben has left the scene. So maybe Reuben had some job to do among the sheep, um, but he's out of the picture. He's not here with what's happening to Joseph. Now, unexpectedly, on a nearby road, the brothers see this passing caravan of Ishmaelites from Gilead. And the caravan is headed to Egypt, and um, where the men are going to sell the items that they have in their caravan, they're on their way to make a profit. I imagine Judah sitting there with his sandwich up on a grassy hillside, eating with his brothers, looking out over the sheep pits over here with Joseph. And he looks up and he sees on a nearby road this caravan passing by. And and he sees all the wares that they're carrying, all the different items they have to sell. And he immediately begins thinking, probably, you know, when I go by a yard sale, a lot of times the first thing I think of is, I wonder what I could sell, right? Yeah, I wonder what I could could get rid of at home to to make some money. And I I think probably he sees these guys going down the road with all these items and he starts thinking, "I, I wonder how I could get some more some more money. Immediately, the idea is just there. What if he and his brothers can get rid of Joseph, because that's what they want to do, get rid of Joseph, and make a little bit of money at the same time? Um, You hear those words. What profit is it for us to do this to our brother? Now, I I don't want to be too hard on Judah. It is possible that Judah's conscience had become bothersome to him. that uh, he, he does say to his brothers they should sell Joseph rather than killing him because he is their own brother, their own flesh. But really, how good is that? We, let's, let's, let's sell our brother into captivity because he's our brother rather than kill him. So we're not going to give him too much credit, but maybe his conscience was bothering him some. Maybe hearing Joseph's cries or eating bread while Joseph had none had caused him to feel a little bit of, of guilt. But rather than doing the right thing and restoring Joseph, the brothers lift him out of the pit and sell Joseph into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. Interestingly, this is one of those little places in the book of Genesis where we have more evidence that this book really is what it claims to be, an accurate account of what happened in real history. Because we have many documents from ancient history that show us that 20 shekels of silver was the going price for a slave in the ancient world. Um, Many of you may have heard of the Code of Hammurabi, very famous ancient document. The Code of Hammurabi lists the going price for a slave at 20 shekels of silver. Uh, Later in the Old Testament, as we get closer to the days of Jesus, that price goes up to 30 shekels of silver. That's what we see in the book of Zechariah, and that's what we see Judas betray Jesus for. In fact, It's one of those striking similarities between Joseph and Jesus. Both Joseph and Jesus were betrayed by a Judas. Judas, the Hebrew word for Judas, and Judas is the Greek word for Judas. It's the same name. And both Joseph and Jesus were betrayed by a Judas for the price of a slave. 
This is not coincidence. This is not happenstance. This is the providence of God. And it's also a fresh reminder to us that both our Lord and those saints who have gone before us have known great suffering. And we must not think that somehow we deserve an easier road to heaven than those who have gone before us. Humbling always comes before being exalted. This is God's way. And if our Savior was willing to submit to that, then we ought to be willing to submit to that as well, whatever it might mean for us. We're so blessed in America, aren't we? That the amount of humbling that we often experience is so small compared to our brothers and sisters around the world. But you may have to endure some flack from others as you live the Christian life. You may be mocked. You may even be denied certain opportunities or left out of certain cool groups around you. You may be taken advantage of because of your faith or even attacked in some way. But suffering for Christ's sake, suffering in the line of duty, in obedience to Christ, it is a great privilege because it will be to your honor in the life to come. Christ is worthy of anything we might endure as we seek to be faithful to Him. And reacting in an ungodly way to suffering will bring dishonor to Christ and it will hurt us and others around us. But but responding well, responding with faith in God and continued obedience in the face of suffering speaks to the world mightily about the value of Jesus Christ. So in Joseph's case, he was put into chains He's just finished a a, a journey of 63 miles by foot, and now he gets to take the trek to Egypt. Let's go to our final paragraph, beginning in verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? So just stop there. Reuben's plan has been foiled, right? He was going to come back and rescue Joseph out of the pit, and he comes back to the pit, and and he's gone. And he tears his clothes, which is a sign of grief and despair. He doesn't know what's happened to Joseph. He just knows the pit is empty, but, but he assumes that whatever's happened, it isn't good because he tears his clothes. And usually in the Old Testament, that is a sign of mourning, a sign of grieving, so many think that Reuben immediately had assumed that his brothers had taken Joseph back out and just slaughtered him. Well, then he finds his brothers. They've moved on to another spot. And he tells them, Joseph is gone. And you can hear the desperation in Reuben's voice. And I, where shall I go? In other words, Reuben is wondering how in the world he can go home and face his father now that Joseph appears to be dead. As the eldest son, he perhaps rightly feels that the responsibility is going to fall upon him. If his father was already displeased with him before, he's wondering, is my father even going to look at me again after this? He doesn't seem to be so concerned about Joseph and what happened to Joseph. He's concerned about what it means for, for him And I, where shall I go? Now we're not told this, but we assume that the brothers then informed Reuben of of what they had done. And in the next verses, we assume he's participating in the cover-up 
which takes place. So let's read the cover-up, verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe, and they slaughtered a goat, and they dipped the robe in the blood. Robe, blood. I mean, think about all the redemptive imagery here pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 32, And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. And so just as Jacob had long ago deceived his father, now Jacob's sons are deceiving him. They've done away with their brother, but they cannot do away with Jacob's love for their brother. And so we're told that Jacob tore his garments, that he put sackcloth on his loins. Sackcloth was a very scruffy kind of cloth. It would have been very uncomfortable or painful for somebody to wear on their body. And so Jacob was tormenting himself over his son's death. It was Jacob who sent Joseph on this journey alone. And now he learns that along the way his son was attacked and killed by a fierce animal. And so in, in Jacob's own mind, he's torturing himself. He, he bears some responsibility for losing the son that he loved so dearly. Now, usually there's a period of mourning after a family has lost a loved one. But in this case, Jacob continued to mourn well beyond what was typical. He refused to move on from his grief. He refused to be comforted. He continued to torture and afflict himself, saying that he would go to the grave with his grief. And here again is the wickedness of the brothers as they now go about their lives day after day living this lie, watching their father suffering, watching their father torment himself, watching their father grieve and mourn, Oh, secretly, they know the truth. They know that Joseph is alive as far as last time they saw him, but they will not confess. Last verse of the chapter. Last verse of the chapter, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And so that's how the chapter ends. The brothers have prevailed in ridding themselves of their brother. Jacob is in mourning, and Joseph is sold as a slave to Potiphar in a land that was strange to him. The curtains come down on the story, and in chapter 38, we have an intermission. Chapter 38 tells us nothing more about Joseph in Egypt. The whole focus changes. And so what's going to happen next? Will, will Jacob find out that Joseph is still alive? What will Joseph experience there in Egypt? Will, will the sons get away with their deceptive deed? That all lies ahead at this point in the story, and we're kind of left hanging and told to wait a while, and then more will be shared. 
Well, let me close tonight by reminding ourselves of the main doctrine in this passage, namely the doctrine of providence. It was no mere coincidence, after all, that of all the slave owners in Egypt, Joseph gets sold to the captain of the guard. I mean, surely this is being worked by God. Even Joseph's suffering is part of the plan, and it's going to result not only in Joseph's exaltation, but in a great work of grace that is going to see the lives of Joseph's brothers transformed. I want to read for you two statements from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. This is based upon Westminster Confession of Faith. I want you to listen carefully to the way these godly men articulated the doctrine of providence. And as you listen to these statements, I want you to ask yourself this question. Can I shout from the bottom of my heart, Amen, to these two statements? If you can, you have found a great secret that will help you have peace and joy no matter what kind of suffering is ahead for you. So here's statement one. See if you can give a hearty amen to this in your soul as you listen. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and all things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise and the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. So do you believe that God upholds, directs, disposes, and governs of all things from the greatest to the least? Do you believe that the orbits of the planets and the flight of the bumblebee are just as much ordained by God and that everything happens according to His sovereign good will? Statement number two. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God, listen to this, does oftentimes leave for a season His own children to manifold temptations and to corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for other just and holy ends. Listen to this so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and for their good. Can you say amen to that? Joseph's brothers, by the way, are part of God's elect people. Now, they don't know it yet. They are not yet men of faith. But they will one day be men of faith. But right now, God has left them to themselves. And God is letting them run free in their wickedness. And they are running free in their wickedness. But you know what? God is going to use that to humble them. And ultimately, even these wicked things are going to turn for their good. Joseph is a believer already, but God has placed him in a low place. Do you think Joseph would have believed the health and wealth gospel? Of course not. 
Look at the things that had happened in his life. And now Joseph is facing temptations to despair. Joseph is facing temptations to rebel against God. Joseph is facing temptations to doubt that God loves him. Or maybe there's not even a God up there with the kinds of things that are happening in his life. And yet, God had always been faithful in the past. He trusted that God would be faithful in the future. You see, God puts trials into the lives of His children. And it might very well be that in the providence of God, you are going through a trial right now. In fact, let me just be honest. We're always going through trials, aren't we? I mean, has there ever been a moment in your life when you could say, I'm not going through a trial right now? Now, some are smaller and some are greater. Some are lesser trials, some are more difficult trials. But when we go through these trials, here is the secret to having true peace in our souls. Can we say, whatsoever befalls any of God's people is by His appointment, for His glory, and for their good. Friends, there are few doctrines more precious than God's providence on behalf of His people. Jesus rested in the providence of God. Jesus knew what he was about to suffer, which was far more than anything you and I will ever experience. Jesus knew suffering at a level that we will ever know. The reason we won't know it is because of his grace. But even our experience of suffering in hell wouldn't have compared to what Jesus experienced because he experienced suffering not just for one person. He experienced the suffering of hell for every person who would ever believe on his name. So that's the kind of suffering that Jesus was to endure. What was his peace as he went through that? It was, I trust my father's will. I trust that my Father says that whom He humbles, He exalts. We're told that Jesus had His eyes on the prize that was before Him the day He would be lifted up. And that's how we ought to endure suffering as well. So trust your Father, trust your Savior, and rest in them. Find the contentment you need to stay strong in living obediently to Jesus Christ. Do what Peter Do what God has called us to do in the midst of suffering. Entrust your soul to your faithful creator and keep on doing good. You can always boil it down to this. Trust and obey. In the midst of hardship, trust and obey. This is the secret to true peace and true contentment. Let's pray.